You guys ever done any of those personality tests where they spit back some results of kind of how you're wired, how God made you? Uh, there's a particular test that spits back a result of an animal. It likens you to the animal that you are most like. My wife, praise God, is a golden retriever. She's loyal. She'll never leave me or forsake me. I've got a son, my oldest, who's a, a lion. I've got a kid at home that's a beaver. What do you guys think I am? I'm an otter, thank you. Somebody was at the 930 service there. But yes, I'm an otter. God has made me an otter. Otters are cute, amen? Can we get an amen? Otters are just really cute. Um, hoping for a louder amen. But otters are cute. I've said that three times now. And they're just, they're just fun. They just like fun. So when you bring your negativity around me, I don't fight. I, I just go flight. I run because I'm running toward fun. That's how God made me, okay? So don't get in my grill with all your negativity because <clears throat> I'm an otter. But as an otter, this challenges me to start the second sermon in this series called The Meaning of the Bible with a Problem, okay? So I don't want to be Debbie Downer, but I just want to say that we have a problem. There's a problem in this room. We have a problem with the Bible. Think about this book that I hold that many of you have in your lap now or will access in a moment. Uh, this Bible is, has various authors, it has 40 different authors. It has over 1,600 commands. There's over 3,000 characters, 31 of whom are named Zechariah. There are genealogical records in the Bible. It tells us that uh, Abim Shemiz uh, beget uh, Meshazizzle, and they're the son of Bananarama or something. I mean, it's what, that's what it sounds like to us, the geological records. Then there are laws in this book. How many of us like laws? Nobody really likes laws. I know lawyers that don't like laws, right? Laws can be so complex and dense and hard to wrap our head around. And then you take biblical law, and as we've taught here before, there's ceremonial law and civil law and moral law and dietary law. And we wonder, you know, this was to ancient cultures and primitive people, and we're left scratching our heads. We have a problem with the Bible. It authors and characters the commandments, the laws, and genealogies. And then there's the problem with us. Maybe it's our um, hypocrisy. But it, this is, we say it often around here at Fondren, it's the best-selling book of all time. Uh, it's the most widely read and circulated. But yet, how many of us really read the Bible? Don't raise your hand. We won't create that climate here today, but just sort of the hand in your heart. Uh, how many of you read the Bible every day, even if it's 15 to 20 minutes a day in your favorite chair? How many of you read it daily? How many of you read it through uh, in a year? We, we like to go in the morning jog and podcast a sermon. Most of us do pretty well, particularly the younger generation, in listening uh, to the Bible. We subscribe to a daily email, right? We read Jesus Calling, one verse at the top, one page, right? We, uh, whether we really fully read the devotion or not, we post pictures to Instagram to make people think that we have time in the Word that morning, right? We, we, but we don't really read this book. And there's an undercurrent behind that. What type of God? I mean, who is this God who gave us this book? Isn't he angry and vindictive? Isn't he a jealous God? What is the heart behind it? What is the outcome of my life if I read it and obey it? Will I become some sort of list-keeping, rule-following, box-checking, check pleasure-avoiding, closed 
insular person that nobody wants to be around. Sort of like when a, a, a repressed librarian marries a neurotic accountant. Like is that sort of the picture that we have of that's the person I'll become if I read and obey this book. What would be the, the outcome of my life and what direction does it take society if we read and obey this book? I mean, there's a lot in society that we hear about from fundamentalists, right? And we cringe at the Kentucky family whose child died because they refused to take it to the doctor based on a reading of James chapter 5 or the church in the Delta that handles snakes every Sunday based on their reading of Mark chapter 16. Or we think of the British and the Dutch and the French imperialism of, of the continent of Africa and the African-American slave trade. We think of even uh, Charlottesville and this weekend and the racism and the evangelical uh, accusation and role and interpretation there. And the hateful invectives that get exchanged based on uh, what some people interpret in the Bible. What type of society? What does the Bible teach on marriage and sexuality? And how does that no longer seem to line up with this uh, new movement and this next generation? We have a problem with the Bible. I think we miss the surprising heart of God behind the Bible. Think about, um, let me ask you, you can't answer this out loud, you're welcome to if you want to shout to me, I'm, not if you were in the 930, but what's the first command when God creates in Genesis, what does he tell, what's the first command to man, what does he tell them to do? Be fruitful and multiply. Now I'm going to try to be careful because there's kids of various ages in the room, but what human activity is required if you're going to be fruitful and multiply? Right, it's not like mommy Presbyterian connects with daddy Presbyterian and they read some John Calvin and then there's baby Presbyterian, right? God created something. He gave us this command to be fruitful and multiply and even uh, it's a delightful um, activity involved in that. And God says, enjoy this. And next, what does God say? He says, eat freely of the tree. Now, we always focus on that tree, that tree that leads to sin and death and created the fall of the world. But God, before that, said, you can eat freely of every tree. Enjoy, enjoy the things that I have created. Um, I was with someone this week who's super fit, just fit as a fiddle, real cut and chiseled. And he tells me, you know, for six days, he just, he just strict, strict diet. And then on the seventh day, he just goes at it. And I told him about my O's diet, you know, the Fritos, Oreos, Doritos, Tostitos, Enchilados, uh, just things that end in O-S. When you want to splurge, that's the route that you go, the O-S diet. But God wants us to enjoy things. And he said to people in the beginning, this is the heart of God, he says, eat freely. And then he tells us to rule over. Scholars call this exercising dominion. He says rule over the fish uh, in the sea, the birds in the air, and all the living creatures on the ground. Exercise dominion. Be inventive. Be creative. Uh, practice initiative and enterprise. Make music and art and poetry and photography. Make machines that go really fast. Long before Top Gun, God knew that we had a need for speed. And he said, create, create. Train dolphins and ride elephants and collect butterflies and just do good things. So here's the heart at the beginning of the Bible, the heart of God, the surprising heart of God for some of you if you're legalistic or fundamentalist. But God says, make love, eat good food, do great stuff. 
And yet, we are loaded down with a wrong view of the Bible and a wrong way to read it and interpret it and apply it to our lives. John chapter 5, if you're fast, you can turn there, John chapter 5. We're going to look at just two verses today to frame uh, sermon 2 in the meaning of the Bible. John chapter 5, we'll look at verse 39 and 40. It's on the screen. Jesus is saying this aloud to religious people who think they get it. And Jesus is saying, you are badly mistaken. Here we go. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He is saying that your head is down. You're doing your religious duty and obligation. You are right in a technical sense of the word. But you're missing the heart of it all. What did we say last week? Were you here? I had a chance to listen online. I dropped two words on you in sermon one on the meaning of the Bible. The first word was, can you say it? You'll make me feel real good. First word was? Glory. Thank you. I feel so good. Second word was? Story. And we said with the word glory that it is not about you. Uh, we're given this injunction, this invitation to whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever it is, do it for the glory of God. It is not about you. It's not for yourself. It's about his glory. Psalm 115 and verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, but unto your name be given the glory. We have a glory hunger. Every heart in this room hungers for glory. And our whole lives will be misplaced. We'll live with the misguided notion that it's about us and we can fit God in. And we do that. We come to the Bible and we put ourselves as the hero of the story. But we are not. And in that word story, we talked about it's a story with five acts. I introduced some of you or reminded some of you of the meta-narrative of Scripture. You don't have to go to seminary now. But there's five parts to this story. Act one is creation. Act two is the fall. Act three is the chosen nation of Israel. A ton of confusion interpreting the Bible or in Act chapter three. And then Act four is Jesus. It's, it's what we see here in John five. You're searching the Scriptures, but it leads to me. And then Act five is the church. It's his spirit with us us living in these days following him. I want to give you three words this morning. Last week I gave you two. This morning I give you three words as it relates to the meaning of the Bible. The first is the word genre. That's just a fun word to say. Look at the person next to you and say genre out loud. Now pretend you're a literary snob, okay? Say genre like a literary snob would say genre. We're just keeping people awake around here. The Bible is a book. Do you believe that? How many believe the Bible is a book? It's actually not a book. It, the word Biblia is Latin for, Latin for the Bible or a book. So actually Bible is technically an unbiblical word, but we'll call it the Bible. We should call it the Bible. I just violated the law of non-contradiction. That's too deep, but let's just move on. But it's, a, it's not a book. It's a collection of books. It's a library. Now you approach a library. Anybody go to the library anymore? Okay, good. We had a librarian, Mariah Carver, because she's on our staff team. I'm so proud of her. She goes to the library often. Her library flooded. Did you find the, she found the next library. But Mariah Carver goes to the library. Apparently, she's the only one. But when Mariah goes to the library, she approaches that differently than you approach a book. A library is a collection of books, and a book is a book. One of the best books I ever read, I had to read in seminary, is called How to Read a Book, and it is it is, it, it's thick, it's, it's really good, but not every book is meant 
to be read the same way. Some of you will come see me and you'll sit down in my office slash library and I just have a, a lot of books. And the first question people ask is, have you read all of these books? As if you're trying to reduce me or prove that I'm some phony or something. But look, I say my rebuttal is always solid and swift. Not every book is meant to be like read. Some are references, and, but every book, depending on the genre, is to be read in a different way. Let me show you a picture of the four that I am reading now. I just finished one. I've read one before. I'm uh, dipping back into it because of a leadership situation. But top right, there's John Perkins, Mississippi's own. Do you guys know John Perkins? We are, we are seeking to have him speak at Fondren sometime, we hope soon. But John Perkins is legend. He's bigger outside of Mississippi than he is in Mississippi. Switchfoot has written a couple of songs based on his writing on race and justice. Uh, John Perkins, Dream With Me, Race, Love, and the Struggle, We Must Win. The next book somebody gave me, I don't know how to feel about this, The Imperfect Pastor. And then the book called The Dip, a little book that teaches you when, you, when to quit and when to stick it out. Some of you need to borrow the dip from me. And then Chew Fly Pie, I'm honored to know the, the, uh, the writer, the author there, Tim Downs. It's a murder mystery crime caper kind of whodunit. And those are the books that I'm reading. Those are different genres. And I approach, am approaching each book differently. You don't plop down on the couch with a cup of coffee and read a cookbook, nor do you read a sci-fi thriller with a highlighter and a journal. We approach different genres differently don't we and that is the spirit behind understanding uh, the scripture in which we read now I want to say something and when I say it you're gonna some of you are gonna resist you're gonna sound like oh no here's Robert Green uh, he's gonna go Rob Bell on us or something it's like your worst fear that you know you, you were suspecting this day would come it's just gonna seem controversial but I want to say to you I want you to lean in uh, uh, be attentive and apply your heart and mind to understand this and it's really important we have to properly read the Bible we have to approach it as a library now Here's sort of the controversial statement. We don't read the Bible literally. We read it literarily. Now, one word, literarily, is a word that we rarely use. It's just hard to say. Try it. Say it. Don't you have to look at anybody. Just look at me and say literarily. You did good. Literally, you're wearing me out with the word literally. Can I just say if you're a teenager, particularly a teenager girl, you're saying it every sentence. Like you're literally at church right now, literally listening to the preacher. You literally had breakfast today. You're literally going to go grab some lunch literally with some friends. And you're literally going to watch that show tonight. It's like literally. But do we, do we read and interpret the Bible literally? If by literal we mean face value, I'm telling you we do not and we should not. We approach it literarily. In the prophet Isaiah, this dominant prophet who foretells of Jesus, and he talks about a day when Charlottesville, Virginia will not exist, when all the wrongs that are done will be made right. It's the, the day of Jesus. And in foretelling this, he says that the trees of the field will clap their hands. Now, we do not wait around for trees to grow hands. Well, it's metaphor. Well, okay, it's branches. Even that falls short because it's Hebrew poetry and it should be read according to its genre. It needs to be read literarily. Jesus 
uh, um, God rather said that um, I have carried my people on eagles' wings. Now, I don't think the scripture there means that God airlifted the people of Israel on an eagle out of Egypt, right? I think it means that he, did, he led them. He provided for them. He delivered them with strength and grace and nobility. He was above them and he reached down in a glorious way and he provided for them. Daniel, in the book of Daniel, talks about, boy, you really need to understand the genre of Daniel to read Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, it says that there's a goat, listen to this, a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes coming from the west and it never touches the ground. You ever put that verse like on a Hallmark card or encourage somebody, right? There's, there's, there's a goat and the goat has a prominent horn and the horn is between the eyes and it's coming from the west and it never touches the ground. Like what, like don't look for a goat there, right? Don't look for a goat with a horn, a prominent horn between the eyes because he's talking about what I believe is a kingdom with a king, Greece, and, and Alexander the Great. And so we read it, we enter into the genre there. Thessalonians, we are told that Jesus is coming back again. How many of you believe, believe that? I do. I'm all in on that. Jesus is coming back on a cloud. Now, I personally, as I've studied it, I don't believe it's a cloud. What type of cloud? A cumulus cloud? Is it, you know, what, what type of cloud is it? I don't think it's a cloud. You may think it's a cloud. After careful research and study, you may come to the conclusion that it's a cloud. My response to that is if you email me is, cool, whatever. I'm just not, that's not how I understand that. So we read the Bible, not literally, but literarily. We understand the genre. So the first word is genre. The second word I want to give you is divine. Here's the word. This word divine, it flows, or it's best presented, I believe, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's a hallmark passage of my own theology and me as a pastor. All scripture, Jesus would say every jot and every tittle, all scripture, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. God's word, it is divine. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says this. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I believe resoundingly that I hold in my hand God's Word. I believe that there's nothing else like it. What clarity, what sobriety, what gravity... That every day, every day, every day for years, when I sit in that most comfortable chair and I open up this book, I am reading the very words of God. God breathed this to us. It is inspired. It is the very words of God. But now, engage your hearts and put on your thinking caps because we're going to create a tension, but it's a necessary tension if we're going to understand the meaning of the Bible. Now, I've taught this before. Jeff Hightower and I here uh, lead together, and he leads the organizational side of the church as I lead the teaching and the vision. And we have a phrase. We borrowed it from a, a leader we admire. Uh, the leader says this, that in life there are problems to solve, and, there, and then there are, there, are tensions that, there are tensions that we have to just understand and lean into and problems to solve hey the air conditions broken the door doesn't work the grass needs cut we got somebody that a tough situation we got to handle you can just go and solve that but there are tensions in life that you just have to hold uh, you don't solve them there are problems that you solve 
There are tensions that you hold. Uh, you hold them tightly and they are in tension. The Bible is divine. The Bible is God-breathed. But I also want to say to you, and here's the tension, the Bible is human. The Bible is the very words of God. And the Bible is also the words of Moses and King David and the prophet Isaiah and the biographer Luke. And God never asked these folks to suspend their personalities or their ideas or their viewpoints, even their worldview or their style. In Acts, we talked this spring and summer about Paul, Acts 9 through the end. We talked about Saul who became Paul. And I said to you several times that he has a genius mind. And I tell you today, he also is a little bit persnickety. Ezekiel. Ever read Ezekiel? If you have a Bible reading plan, you'll get to Ezekiel. You may call me for when you have some questions. But Ezekiel has a very wild imagination. Mark is sort of a stress case. You guys know any stress cases? Mark is just all stressed. And like a lot of stressed people I know where anxiety is high, he's short and to the point, but he's a brilliant writer. And Luke is a doctor. He's the one who calls Jesus the great physician. And he is detailed and really intelligent. And God uses these and those like them to pen his words. And here's what I want to tell you today. That's not a dirty little secret. Orthodox, traditional, Jesus brand Christianity teaches us that the Bible is divine and it is human. I'll give you proof that it's not a dirty little secret. Here's Paul who penned large chunks of the Bible. Here are just some bullet points from his letter to Corinth. Uh, the first letter to Corinth he wrote to Paul, not God, Paul, to the church of God in Corinth. Next, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. <laughs> Isn't that great? Human. I, I, I can't remember. I don't, I don't know. I give you this command, not I, but the Lord. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. Is there some human opinion there? What I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. You picking up on this? God... His word is divine and it's human. It's not a dirty little secret. Can you think of another example of that that we hold in tension as followers of Jesus? Here's one for you. How about Jesus? Jesus himself, fully God and fully human. Now, when it comes to the Bible, uh, conservative people emphasize clearly the divine nature of the Bible. And progressives or liberals uh, emphasize the human element of authorship of the Bible. In the person of Jesus, we see someone who is fully God and fully man. There are two approaches I want to submit to you today. One is right, it's the first one. Then I'm going to give you the negative one, the one that we're victimized by. The first one, the right approach, is... Uh, the incarnational approach. By the way, I'm borrowing from some great scholars here, particularly, you're going to laugh when I say this, but particularly uh, the um, producer of VeggieTales, who is a brilliant mind and scholar. And this incarnational approach is just what the Scripture teaches, that we see God, and God led these people to pen these words, and what we have is the Word of God. But he used the mess of humans. We have three languages. Three languages. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. 
pinned over 1,500 years on various continents with 40 different authors. And in the incarnational approach, just as we see Jesus fully God, fully man, we see this with the Bible. A conservative theologian tends to view Jesus like this. Well, Jesus is God in a human body, so not really human. In fact, when Jesus would say things about his humanity, which is all through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus, well, he would say things like, according to the conservative approach, that Jesus is God in a human body. Jesus would say things like, um, I'm tired, but I'm, I'm not really tired. I'm just kind of like God hiding in this body. I don't really get tired because I'm God, right? That's sort of the conservative, like, you know, we can't, we can't deal with the humanity of Jesus. And then there's the liberal or progressive view, which is Jesus is like, I mean, he's 99% human and he's got a quote-unquote spark of the divine. But Jesus is fully God and fully human. Are you here today going, I, I mean, I can't, I can't figure this out. Anybody thinking that way? Because I can't figure this out. Because we're talking about God. We're talking about an unmanageable deity that's far above any and all. Isaiah as his thoughts are, his, his ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. We can't fully grasp it. In Philippians 2, it's great uh, Christological poetry. It's some of the greatest poetry about the person of Jesus. And it teaches us that even though he was God, he became man. He emptied himself. Well, you're not God. He emptied himself and took on human form so that he could show us the greatest act of sacrificial love ever known to man. And I think God humbled himself and he chose to give us his holy inspired word through human authors. And in that, we have to embrace the beauty and the mess of it all. The second approach is one that won't get you through your freshman year of college. It's the golden tablets view. Now, if you're in a private Christian school and go to Chick-fil-A all the time and Lifeway is the only bookstore you visit, man, you'll be good with the golden tablets view of life but when you get out there amidst multiculturalism and religious pluralism and you get into an intellectual environment this will not hold weight and this is sort of um, the Mormon view of their holy scriptures their alleged holy scriptures which is the golden tablets view God just dropped it it just descended from heaven and that is in no way true I want you to look at Psalm 148, and I want to talk about something beautiful that will help you understand the meaning of the Bible. Psalm 148, very familiar scripture. Praise the Lord. If you grew up in a liturgical background, as some of you did, you've said this aloud in churches before. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him the heights above. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His heavenly hosts. Praise Him sun and moon. Praise Him all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the sky. Any problem there? What about that last part, the waters above the sky? How good is that? I mean, how scientific is, is that? Not at all. Not at all. And so the golden tablet view of the Bible would be, whoa, 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 whoa. Something, you got to do a lot of calisthenics. you got to get creative. But you see, here, this is ancient cosmology. And God chose to speak his truth there. It's not a statement of science. It's a statement about how all of creation is going to praise him. 
And so we can either be swept up in the author's intention of what was stated, or we can be bogged down. I say it often, and every time I do, I get engaged with some of you, and I love it. But we do not have to choose between the Bible and science or the Bible and history. We do not. We do not. This is ancient cosmology. And the waters are not above the sky. But there is a point that the author intends. And that's what we need to learn and love and appreciate. Just as Jesus took on human form, God wrote his word. And as I said last week, I said it several times so that you would begin to think this way. But God meets people where they are and moves them forward. There's a problem with fundamentalism today. When we say, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Because there's revelation, there's interpretation, and there's application. And that gives no room for what Jesus desires for us, interpretation. And it is messy, but it is important. It is very important because you see Jesus with the religious people who were just thumping verses in a very fundamental way. And Jesus wanted to reason with them and dialogue with them and let them see their place in the story and how God met them of old and moved them forward and moved them forward. And I believe that is what God does in the church in this act chapter 5. This book is like no other. I was, some of you know my story, I was 14 and 15 years old when I embraced this book, and though I'm an otter and an extrovert, I spent hours alone in my room reading it and thinking about it. And it led me as a teenager to Jesus. Me and a college buddy, he pastors a small church in town, Chip Henderson. Some of you heard of him, maybe, struggling church. He and I started memorizing large chunks of the Bible together back in college. I'm devoted to this book. And if I've shared something today where you think, oh, I want to tell you today, what I presented to you is not a low view of the Bible. It's the highest view of the Bible. Because we need to view the Bible as Jesus viewed the Bible. So simmer down with your, the Bible says it, that settles it, and I believe it. And learn to enter into debate and discussion and let the Spirit illuminate and give you life. And be done with these wrong notions that the Bible never intended for us to have. You wrestle with the humanity and divinity of Jesus. And I think we need to hold this intention today, how God gave His perfect Word through fallible, messy humans. And you know why I think he did? Because we are messy and fallible humans.